Chapter 11 of Unknown London, written by Walter George Bell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Janet. Chapter 11 The Baga de Secretis. Three locks of cunning workmanship, each one different, the shot bolts holding fast should the possessor of a single key attempt alone to open the jaws. Three keys deeply cut in varying patterns, one held in the keeping of the Lord Chief Justice, the second in that of the Attorney General, and the third by the Master of the Crown Office. Three high officers of state, acting together, each with his key and lock, might open the bag of secrets, but none others, nor one of them alone. Bluebeard's cupboard was not guarded with such care, it could disclose a story less tragical than this of the great Baga, less a thousand times. Perhaps one ought not to wonder that with such precautions the crown kept inviolate against prying eyes the records which affected the king in his most intimate and domestic relations, the frailties of queens, the treason of subjects, the course of justice, which too often was injustice when the fountain itself was dishonourable. Far back in our history these dim and stained parchments go, to the reign of King Edward the Fourth. They are strangely intermixed, telling much of treasons and attainders, affecting the king's throne more than his personal relation, till Henry the Eighth's much troubled life sent to the Bagade Secretus the piled documents so full of human sadness with their questions of guilt or innocence so monstrous inconceivable it seems that still we are left in doubt sometimes the doubt whether we can accept the word of man or woman though they themselves by their plea say they are guilty of this thing charged and so saying suffer anne boleyn keeps this company a tragical figure asserting her innocence Catherine Howard, later Lady Jane Grey. Here, too, figures Sir Walter Raleigh, a great patriot and ill-starred adventurer, beheaded at Westminster. Fisher and Moore, prisoners in the tower together, suffers for the same faith and sharing the same fate. Sir Thomas Wyatt, rebel against Queen Mary. The handsome favourite, Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, rebel against Elizabeth, members of the proud Duckle House of Norfolk, and statesmen from Edward Plantagenet, Earl of Warwick. The names in hundreds, even thousands, form almost an epitome of England's history, but some you miss, like Monmouth, executed upon attainder without trial, and too there is nothing of old Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett, the last man to suffer in George II's time, decapitation upon tower hill all the trials recorded in these papers are those of subjects for crimes against the king one king was placed on trial for crime against his subjects but of charles i the baga de secretis contains nothing the crown state could not acknowledge the competence of that court sitting in westminster hall to give the record inclusion here long ago the great leathern baga itself disappeared swollen by its contents no doubt 
till they reached such proportions that no ox hide could hold them. In our own age, when the Baga was explored, it consisted of a closet in which this collection was kept separate from other documents of the king's bench, still under the three keys, held by the same three officers of state. Pouches or small bags were the receptacles of many of the ancient parchments, which generally were in good condition as to soundness, though crushed and crumpled in consequence of the mode in which they had been stowed. They ranged in shelves, row upon row, in the secret closet. The old order changeth, yielding place to the new. The older order that had produced these tragical happenings. The records deal with a long dead past. History enthroned in judicial calm sits in judgment upon these men and women, free from those influences and prejudices and fears which distracted judgment in their own day, searching only for truth. Loss, not public gain, results from concealment. All need for secrecy has gone. The locked jaws of the Baga de Secretis are opened. Who can be harmed? And today its contents are distributed in their proper series and time amongst the other documents of the Public Record Office in Chancery Lane, accessible, these papers guarded by our kings with such jealous care, to any student who fills out the required slip for the attendant. It was for centuries believed that the documents of the trial of Anne Boleyn had been destroyed. The trial was secret, conducted by a few chosen instruments who should do a brutish king's brutal behests. The public had not knowledge by which to question the judicial act. The victim was sacrificed. So the story had grown, weaving around Anne Boleyn, pity indeed, pity which none can withhold, and making her martyr not quite saint yet still not satisfying, still leaving doubt, still with that heart-searching question unanswered. Was she this, or libertine, and worse? Sweet Anne Boleyn, the gentle queen of a tragic epic, laughing herself at that little neck, which next morning was to be severed by the Calais headsman's sword. Was she this, or a brazen, corrupted, let us in pity leave out the word. The Baga de Secretis revealed the documents, neither destroyed by designing hands nor lost, but preserved with meticulous care, each order and writ and bill. Nothing is missing. One recalls the use Frode made of them, and how one's beliefs toppled over, beliefs influenced in large part by that letter of infinite pathos which she wrote to Henry the Eighth and her protestations of innocence. The evidence on oath we have not got. It satisfied the jurors of the different counties in which it was collected. The indictment, based on their return, sets out the place, the date, the personalities in respect of each act charged, indicating only too plainly the whole revolting story. Mark Smitten, the court musician accused, pleaded guilty and being of ignoble birth died at the giblet. The others, of noble blood, suffered by the axe, and at the end did not protest innocence. 
and what was the court which joined in collusion with henry the eighth in this act of unspeakable infamy in putting to death a discarded queen that is if anne be held innocent and the guilt be that of henry guilt more red more shameful a thousand times even than hers a packed carefully selected and corrupt tribunal let us see the attendant at the public record office in chancery lane will bring you the documents still in the original white leather pouch drawn together at the mouth with a leathern thong in which they have been always kept and thereon you may read the names the trial of the queen and of lord rockford her brother took place in the tower the fifteenth may fifteen thirty six there were the two english dukes of norfolk the veteran who had won his spurs at flodden field in suffolk the one english marquis of exeter the earls of arundel oxford northumberland the queen's early lover westmoreland derby worcester rutland sussex and huntingdon all those in the peerage save four lords audley delaware montague morley dacre cobham matravers powis mount eagle clinton sandys windsor wentworth berg and mordant twenty-seven in all men heareth her too of unblemished honour the noblest blood in the realm lord wiltshire one of the four absent earls was not called upon to give judgment upon his daughter and son but he sat upon the commission and acquiesced in the finding which condemned the four commoners accused of adultery with the queen that commission consisted besides of lord audley the lord chancellor of england the dukes of norfolk and suffolk the earls of oxford westmoreland and sussex lord sandys thomas cromwell sir william fitzwilliam lord high admiral often called the nelson of the sixteenth century sir william paulette lord treasurer and all the nine judges of the courts of westminster had ever other commoners such a court to try their cause thirty-two knights and gentlemen were the grand jurors who returned true bills on the sworn evidence and their names in the counties stood not less high were all these so craven so despicable so lacking in human soul that for fear of henry's displeasure they returned a finding which they knew to be false fearful to do right in the belief that the king desired a wrong they accepted concocted evidence knowing its worthlessness was there not one honest man among them they had the evidence which we have not they answered to their names individually when called upon for their verdict and in the two trials there is not one dissent in voice can anybody conceive that henry arbitrary as were his methods could alone have suborned the entire house of peers the full judicial bench the ruling class without whom government was impossible the knights and gentlemen of the counties and not find among them one witness to the truth who should speak out these men who found the guilt of anne boleyn were the flower of england of its blood its chivalry its learning its character if the tribunals appointed do not satisfy where should others stronger have been found the kingdom could not have produced their like the baga de secretis 
by disclosing the constitution of the courts and the jurors, has solved an historic doubt. Either the evidence was such as to satisfy reasonable men, or Englishmen at this time had sunk into a morass of infamy and impotency of which we have believed our country clean? They were the Englishmen of the Reformation. Call us Huns, or what you will, if we are descendants of forefathers who shared with Henry the Eighth the guilt of this cowardly crime. Let us bury our pride of race under the disgrace. To me it is incredible. If consolation lie in that fact, let us admit that error is always possible with all parliaments, all judges, with the largest numbers. But this trial and judgment were honest. Against the reveled fact stands a legend, and the legend must go. The records of another queen's wrong fill in all fifty-three members in the great Baga, Catherine Howard. A plump little person, radiant with that immeasurable gift of youth, she was but twenty-two, and pleasing she must have been to Henry's eye. Almost we forget her admitted frailties in the remembrance of that weird scene by candlelight in the gloomy tower the night before her execution. She desired that the block on which she was to be beheaded might be brought to her, that she might learn how she was to place herself. This was done, and she made the experiment, wrote the ambassador Chuppius and so prepared on a February morning, she went out into the sunrise of her last day, for the execution had been fixed for seven o'clock. These other parchments at my elbow, separated in time but by a few years, are the papers of the trial of a third queen, the Lady Jane Grey, the pitiful queen of a nine days' reign. The charge against her is of high treason, and specifically that she signed various writings, Jane the Queen, against her allegiance. The commission is addressed in the first instance to Thomas White, mayor of the city of London, other names following, and the precept to the constable of the tower, commanding him to bring her to Guildhall for trial, is signed by me, Thomas White, and afterwards T. Norfolk, the Duke of Norfolk, Earl Marshal of England. It is the acknowledgment of the Lord Mayor's precedence in the city, as in all cases where the trial was at Guildhall. She came on foot, why this unnecessary humiliation one wonders, and so returned. Cranmer and Guilford Dudley were with her, and with her pleaded guilty. Judgment against the Lady Jane Grey that she be burnt alive on Tower Hill, or beheaded, as the Queen shall please. Oh, the horror of those times of butchery that could admit such a sentence! I have said that the Baga de Secretis contains nothing of the trial of Charles I, but packed into it are the papers of the regicides. Listen to the legal phraseology when a king dies violently. They... John Lythe and forty-seven others, proposed and consulted to murder the said king, and took upon themselves authority and power to put the said king to death, in execution of which traitorous design, viz. 30 January, in the parish of St. Martin in the fields, they, together with a certain man, whose name is unknown to the jurors, 
having a visor upon his face and being clad in a frock assaulted the same king and the said unknown man with an axe which he held in both his hands struck the said king upon his neck and divided his head from his body afterwards william hewitt was hurried to execution as the headsman but his fate leaves unsolved the mysterious identity of the masked man on the scaffold raised outside the banqueting-house at whitehall colder words than those cited could not be used for the most common crime it is with the toll of death that the great baga has been stuffed rare indeed is it to light upon an acquittal here i find a man otherwise john johnson a figure swollen with a great crime which still we recall each year do you know john johnson a complete stranger he seems it is guy fawkes who alone fills the bill of gunpowder plot as arch-conspirator and desperado with a name ringing and sounding down the centuries louder than ever johnson would have done i could not bring myself to light squibs and catherine wheels to celebrate johnson it was the name that fox gave when bound hand and foot and under strong guard he was brought into king james's presence in the royal bedchamber at whitehall at one o'clock on the morning of his arrest when the privy council was hastily assembled there and he would say nothing save with a wry smile that his purpose was to blow the scots back to scotland again fox's crushed indictment of portentous length has been tumbled into the baga and in it i read that thomas winter guy fox otherwise johnson keys robert winter grant rookwood and bates were charged that they conspired and attempted to blow up the king queen prince henry as well as the knights citizens and burgesses in parliament assembled with gunpowder and i am left more than ever with puzzling wonder why gunpowder plot was not unmasked earlier this apart from the fact that the knowledge was in the keeping of thirteen conspirators auspicious number on the eleventh december sixteen o four these men began to dig with great labour a mine under the parliament house even to the middle of the wall of the said parliament house such foundation being of the thickness of three yards with the intention of placing a large quantity of gunpowder therein for the purpose of carrying their treasonable intentions into effect finding the job tough they hired through percy a fellow conspirator a neighbouring house which had the advantage of a cellar going right under the house of lords and on twentieth march next did remove twenty barrels of gunpowder from the house of percy into the said cellar then on the thirty first july fearing that their explosive had become damp they brought into the cellar ten more barrels of powder no suspicion had been aroused further the plotters on the twentieth september following brought into the cellar four hogsheads filled with gunpowder and also various iron bars and stones to place upon the same and placed them thereon and in order that the same might not be seen covered them with faggots what was the sleepy westminster watch doing months were passing eleven months in all 
in which digging was going on barrels and hogsheads of gunpowder and missiles for the explosion were being rolled in from the street till thirty-four powder barrels in all were stored and no one in authority was a penny the wiser the fourth november came eve of the parliament's meeting and that night fox was found in flagrante delicto in the cellar watching beside the barrels with touchwood and matches about him his signature to the confession extorted from him when on the rack you may see in the public record office the trembling broken lines testifying that the poor wretch had been so nerve-shattered by his torture that he could not grasp the pen now we make amends for the lack of caution shown when gunpowder plot was hatching and though three centuries have passed since the peril still each time that parliament meets for a new session the beef-eaters conduct their search for powder-barrels in the vaults below the parliament house a curious crime of which the baga contains the whole story is that by edward squire a yeoman of london in his attempt to poison queen elizabeth squire had attached himself to philip of spain when he was preparing an armada for invasion of england and attempting the life of great elizabeth this man brought back with him from seville a poisonous confection contained in a double bladder to the intention that he should smear the pommel of the queen's saddle therewith when the queen was about to ride in order that she putting her hand on the pommel might be poisoned he actually obtained admittance to the courtyard where the queen's riding horse was awaiting her and rubbed some of the poison on the pommel of the saddle exclaiming loudly at the same time god save the queen for the purpose of better concealing his treason but his clumsiness betrayed him judgment as against all traitors timothy penchard forged a likeness of elizabeth's seal to counterfeit writs of the queen's bench and this was his savage sentence that he should be put in the pillory upon two successive market days in cheapside and on the first day should have one ear nailed to the pillory and on the second day his other ear nailed to the pillory in such manner that he should by his own proper motion be compelled to tear away his two ears from the wood elizabeth had a short way with vagabondage it was charged against roland and thomas gabriel lawrence bannister and christopher jackson on indictment found at aylesbury that they did keep company with four persons but one of whom diego bears a foreign name vulgarly called in calling themselves egyptians and counterfeited transformed and altered themselves in dress language and behavior to such vagabonds called egyptians contrary to statute judgment that they are to be hanged why this petty felony should figure among the historic trials in the baga de secretis i do not know but these and many other names of men of mean condition stand on equity with the ill-fated dukes of buckingham and suffolk with surrey and somerset essex and cobham in the state calendar of crime End of chapter eleven